Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah here, and welcome to another episode of Principle of Charity. And today we are very excited to bring you the rock star of the behavioral genetics world, Robert Plowman. But before we get into the conversation, if you are looking for an intellectual night out on the town, why not join immersive journalist, psychonaut, and best-selling author, Michael Pollan, for an evening that will change the way you see food, drugs, and how the human and natural world intersect. Live on stage in May 2023 in a city near you, tickets are selling fast, so get in quick at thinkinc.org.au. Let's get into the conversation with Emil, Lloyd, and Robert. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. The focus of our podcast is to find constructive ways to converse when we are in disagreement. And this week, our Principle of Charity personal challenge is around the theme of dismissal. Since we establish much of our identity around our values, when someone dismisses our beliefs, it can feel like they are dismissing us. And so the personal challenge this week is, the next time someone dismisses your point of view, can you remember they are dismissing your point of view, not you? And Emil, on that note, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is, is there anything we can really do to mold our kids? Behavioral geneticist Robert Plowman's book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, changed my life. More importantly, and I hope my kids will attest to this, he changed the life of my kids for the better, and I'll explain why in a moment. Robert is arguably the leading figure in behavioral genetics, working across the field for many decades. In his book, Blueprint, he shows us the extraordinary evidence for our genetic nature being the absolute dominant force in predicting who we are and will become. In fact, about 50% of everything we care about is predicted by our genes, not just our weight and height, but schizophrenia, anxiety and depression to personality traits like agreeableness, grit and love of learning, through to general intelligence and even university success. But equally shockingly, the other 50%, the nurture part, is actually about half attributable to our genes too, which he calls the nature of nurture. And to make matters worse, the final 25% of nurture is not due to our shared environment, such as our home and upbringing. It's non-systematic, which means it's not something we can really control. Now, the percentages, of course, differ from trait to trait, but this is the basic takeout. The evidence itself is pretty overwhelming, and none of this is, in fact, new. Well before the DNA revolution, there have been countless twin studies and adoption studies that show that the family you've been brought up in makes pretty much no difference to who you end up being uh, across all the various traits we, we care to care about. 
just to make sure this idea lands properly. Children who've been adopted out are essentially as similar to their biological parents as if they've been brought up by their biological parents. Or put it another way around, you'd basically be the same person if you grew up in another household. Again, nurture does make a big difference between 25 to 50% across most traits. But for the most part, it's just not systematic. And that means we can't use it to really change our kids or anyone else. Now, the DNA revolution, which is really just a few years old, is now finally able to show exactly how this is true. It turns out that most of our traits are not products of one or two genes, as originally thought, but of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of genetic combinations. And now that more and more data from more and more individual DNA are collected, combined with a huge growth in computing power, we can actually map our polygenetic scores across a whole range of traits, giving us some strong predictions of who we may become. Absolutely key to this is that it's not deterministic. These are probabilities with big variances, and it does not tell any individual that they will definitely be anything. But in terms of predicting power, these probabilities are much more powerful than pretty much anything nurture can provide across most areas. And of course, there are areas where nurture is systematic and predictive, and we'll get into those. It just turns out there are way less than we thought, particularly in comparison to genetic influence. Now, all of this is very confronting, and I know many of you listening will be reacting strongly. There will be pushback as to whether this is true or not, and fear that if it is true, it could be used to justify inequality and worse, to manipulate populations through eugenics. At the same time, as Plowman argues, it can be used for massive good to help tailor medical, psychological and education solutions to our individual differences and to open up a world that respects true differences rather than pretending that we are all built the same. But more importantly for the conversation today, it radically changes how many of us approach parenting. Outside of loving and protecting our children, we can let go a bit of that inner panic that tells us that our role is to mould our kids, that our actions are crucial determinants in our kids uh, growing up to be smart, resilient, growth mindseted, kind, enthusiastic, healthy, non-anxious and non-depressed adults. We're actually just not that important, except in the genes we've passed on. Most radically of all, Plowman entreats us to focus on enjoying our time with our children, saying that parenting matters most just through the quality of our experiences together. Lloyd, give us a few more lines on exactly who Robert Plowman is, and let's, let's bring him on and explore exactly what parents can and can't do. Emil, I'm going to give you a little bit more than a few more lines. Robert is quite a legend. Uh, he is a professor in behavioral genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College, London. He received his doctorate from the University of Texas at Austin, followed by academic positions at the University of Colorado and Penn State. He has published more than 900 papers and a dozen books. Robert has received lifetime research achievement awards from all the major societies in the behavioral sciences, and I am going to mention them. The Behavior Genetics Association, the American Psychological Association, the Association of Psychological Science, the British Psychological Society, the Society for Research in Child Development, the International Society for Intelligence Research. In addition, Robert has been made Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the British Academy, and the American Academy of Political and Social Science, as well as the Academy of Medical Sciences. Robert is one of the most cited psychologists of the 20th century, with over 130,000 citations. He has also been ranked amongst the 100 most eminent psychologists in the history of science. And as Emil said, his latest book is Blueprint, how DNA makes us who we are. Let's bring him on. 
thank you so much, Robert, for joining us on the podcast. And as I said in my intro, you know, your book really did change my life. It's, it's not that I, I learned so much how predictive genes are across so many of the big areas of our life. And it's, it's not your equally startling revelation to me about how the nurture half is either nature disguised or such unsystematic nurture that we really can't use it to control much. And, you know, they were all incredible revelations for me. But it's the conclusion you drew about parenting. And more importantly, you know, I think uh, that conclusion for my kids, which which changed their life. Your conclusion, as I remember it, or as I've internalized it, is that because we really can't do that much to mold our kids, we should focus on just enjoying our time with them primarily. And that's a pretty startling conclusion for this age of, of helicopter parenting. And I'm really excited in this podcast to really dig deeper into all of this and interrogate what exactly we can and can't mold in our kids. But before we get into parenting, we do need to start at the beginning. And, and even you know before we get into the g- genetics itself, can you attempt as briefly as possible to tell us what the twin and adoption studies reveal about how much is nature, how much is really nature disguised as nurture, and whether the nurture stuff is systematic enough to be predictive. Yeah, these are just two methods that allow us to ask the extent to which individual differences, that is like differences in personality or psychopathology, are due to inherited DNA differences. And when I started as a graduate student in psychology in 1970, psychology was dominated by environmentalism, the view that we are what we learn. And this really gets close to parenting right away, because from Freud onwards, it was always just assumed, reasonably enough, that nurture, that is systematic effects of family environment, is what makes us turn out the way we are. That's perfectly reasonable. But when we realize that parents and children are 50% genetically related, you begin to say, well, could it be that that similarity between what parents do and how children turn out could be mediated genetically? And we know parents and things run in families from body weight to mental illness, personality. We knew it ran in families, but that was no problem for psychology. It's nurture, of course. It's what parents did to the kids that made the difference. So what was striking is to use methods like the twin and adoption method to ask, to what extent is that true? To what extent do genetic differences, that's inherited DNA differences, to what extent do they make a difference? in children's outcomes. And what we learned from these methods is the answer is a lot. I mean, much more than anyone ever expected. On average, what these studies showed is that about half of the differences between children in personality, mental illness, cognitive abilities are are due to inherited DNA differences. So the, the twin and adoption methods are two different designs to ask to answer that question. The twin method is like a natural experiment in which you've got two types of twins. I'm sure everybody knows this. There are identical twins in science called monozygotic because they're a single fertilized egg. So they're clones of one another. They have the same DNA. The other type of twin, two-thirds of all twins, are what we call in the world fraternal twins or in the commonwealth non-identical twins. They're like any brother and sister. They're 50% similar genetically. So if genetics is is not important, did not matter that the identical twins are twice as similar genetically because genetics doesn't matter. Uh-huh. But instead, what you find is everywhere you look, um, this you find that identical twins are much more similar than non-identical twins. So for, for height, which I'm sure everybody realizes is highly heritable, about 90% of the difference between us in height are due to inherited DNA differences. 
Hmm. Well, um, that's identical twin correlations are about 0.9. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure people know correlation goes from zero to one. Identical twins, 0.9. Fraternal twins, about 0.45. So very strong genetic influence. Now, weight, most people don't understand, is highly heritable. If it wasn't heritable, you'd expect similar correlations for identical and non-identical twins. But in fact, identical twins correlate about 0.75, and non-identical twins correlate about 0.45. Again, suggesting very substantial genetic influence. And I'll get to the adoption method in just a second, but to make sure people understand what this means, we're not saying, what we're saying is that of the differences you see in people in their height and weight, most of those differences are due to inherited DNA differences. We're describing what is in the population. We're not saying what could be. So I have a genetic propensity to put on weight, but that doesn't mean I can't lose weight. I can. You know, if you don't give me any food, I'll lose weight. But what we're talking about is in the population, you know, given the genetics and the environments we're exposed to, to what extent um, Mm -hmm. are these differences due to genetics? So the adoption method is even more straightforward. You, You can look at, you know, nature and nurture run together in families. Parents and children share genes and environment. But you can separate that by looking at birth parents, biological parents, and their adopted away children. Hmm. They share genes, but not environment. Hmm. And the other side of it's neat, too. You can get a direct estimate of shared of growing up in a family with someone by studying these adopted away kids and their adoptive parents because they share yeah. environment, but not genes. And so for weight, for example, parents and offspring correlate about 0.45 for weight. It was always assumed that that's nurture. And it's it's not dumb because... Parents give the kids the food and their diet and lifestyles. But what you find is, so parents who share genes and environment with their kids correlate 0.45. What about birth parents and their adopted away children that they don't see after the first few weeks of life? They correlate 0.45. They correlate just as much as parents do with the, the kids they raise. So then what about, that would imply that nurture doesn't make a difference. And that's the case. The correlation between adoptive parents or adopted children is zero. And it's not just weight and height we're talking about. I mean, you know, can you spell out a little bit more broadly all the areas that, you know, yes. that genetics has a power over? Right. Well, most studies have been done using the twin method. And there was a recent review, uh, uh, we call it a meta-analysis, of, believe it or not, 3,000 twin studies. Hmm. with i think it's something like 15 million pairs of twins these Hmm. are twin studies across all of the biological sciences from physical traits like height and weight which i just described to physiological traits like blood pressure to psychological traits and what that study showed is a remarkably uh simple story on average across all these diverse traits physical traits are about 70 percent heritable on average Physiological traits, about 60% heritable, and psychological traits, about 50% heritable, meaning that 50% of the differences between people and psychological traits are due to inherited DNA What's differences. What's a psychological trait? What's, what, what are you putting it's in? It's everything, everything we study in psychology, like personality, psychopathology, cognitive abilities, interests, attitudes, everything psychologists study. Wow. That's a, that really is wow, because there's some differential heritability that is personalities about 40% heritable and 
other end, cognitive abilities are about 60% heritable. But in the behavioral sciences, to explain 50% of the differences is astronomical. It's unbelievable. And what's especially striking about this is when I started graduate school, you couldn't even talk about genetic influence in psychology. This is in 1970. And there was just general antipathy in psychology because everybody knew that the way kids turned out is due to the way their parents treated them. And this was suggesting that what parents do doesn't make much of a difference in how the kids turn out, which is the topic we're going to get to. But what a striking change from the 1970s to now, when most psychologists accept an imp- not just statistically significant genetic effects, but very substantial genetic effects. But could you just touch on, let's call it 50% on average, being the nature part? You, you coined this term, the nature of nurture, that actually part of nurture is sort of nature in disguise. You know, briefly, what what does that mean? Well, this came about because in the 1980s, we started including widely used psychological measures of the environment. These are things like life events, stress, daily hassles, parenting. Yeah. So these are measures widely used and thought of as environmental measures. And most of them show significant genetic influence, not 50%, but on average, 25%. So these so-called environmental measures are showing significant and really substantial. But what does that mean, genetic? How can you have a genetic impact on parenting? Exactly. exactly. And this is the point of the nature of nurture. It's Mm. what we call the environment. Calling a measure an environmental measure doesn't make it environmental. you got to say what makes people different. Like take the most widely used measure of in, in psychology and sociology, life events. What is on a life events measure? It's the top items, the biggest items, are things like conflicts with people, financial disruption. This isn't the environment out there that just happens to us poor, hapless souls. Mm. This is our experience. We're very much involved in whether we have financial Mm. disruptions or we get in conflicts with people. And that's the big difference. Early on in psychology, the environment was thought of in this stimulus-response way, the early learning theorists. You're a rat in a cage, and the environment is what the experimenter does to you. They shock you. You have no no control over that at all. It's entirely imposed on you. But believe it or not, psychologists continue to think that way about the environment. So parenting is what parents do to the kid. And life events is what happens to you. And what this research is saying is we need a different view of the environment, including parenting. And that's a, a, a more active view in which children select and modify and create environments and experiences correlated with their genetic propensities. And yeah. so this leads directly into the main topic you wanted to talk about today. But, but so an example I remember from your book was, was that a kid who, you know, the parents read to the child and you think that that's the environment. They grew up in a very book-rich environment, but actually their propensity genetically to enjoy books is, is part of the reason that they're read to, whereas their sibling might not uh, enjoy it and you find that, you know, they're not read to as much. So you're bringing yourself to the environment. The environment's not just uh, there to... Uh... It, it's such an important point. That's kind of the critical issue in a way. You know, we always say correlations do not imply causations. But yeah. every week you read in the newspaper about parents do this, kids turn out that way. And you know it's a correlation, but it's almost hard to resist interpreting it causally. Parents read to the kids. Kids do better in reading at school. That's because parents cause that difference in their kids. But then when you say, uh, if people get anything out of this, uh, 
I'd like them to realize that genetics is everywhere. There's no known psychological traits that don't show genetic influence. And what we call the environment, like parenting, that's behavior too. Some parents are more loving to their kids. Some parents read more to their kids. And so when you see those correlations, if you can just resist the temptation to interpret it causally and just say, wait a minute now, they're 50% related genetically. Is it possible genetics explains this? And it can explain it in three ways. One is to say the, the parents might be uh, causing um, these differences in their kids because they share 50% of their genes. But there's also the possibility that parents, that children are actually extracting their environment from their parents. You know, I've got six grandchildren. One of them would let me read to her all day long, which is what I thought grandchildren were supposed to do, you know, sit there and while I read. But I have a couple of others. It would be, it would be um, really getting, bordering on abuse if I made them sit there. They want to <laughs> kick a ball around. They want to run around. Yeah. You know, so I'm responding to them. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're actually extracting what they want from me. Mm. And the other mm. part of it is I respond to them. If a kid comes up and says, Daddy, will you please read to me? you know, you read to them. But if they don't do that, you're less likely to do it. So there's three ways in which genetics can, in, you know, in, um, mediate yeah. that correlation between parenting and how well children read. And and what about the balance of the 25%? Because you, I still held out hope that there'd be that final 25%. But it seems that, you know, you're saying that even though it, it does affect children or, you know, people are affected by that part of nurture. It's not systematic enough to actually be able to be, uh, you know, gamed by parents to affect any change in their children. It's it's really essentially just random shit that happens. And, you know, I've seen that in my kid. One of them just decided he wants to go to the gym. And I've never thought he would ever have any chance of wanting to do that before. It wasn't anything I ever discussed with him. Things just happen in your life that take you in certain ways. It's that's the world of non, non-systematic causes, is it? The easiest example is if we go back to weight. And, you know, it was assumed that nurture, what parents do, is the biggest determinant of how children develop physically in terms of their weight, how, how heavy they become. And the adoption study I showed says two things. It says genetics is important. It accounts for about half of the variance or more of the yeah. differences between kids. But the rest is not genetic. It's environmental. And then like you, you'd think, yeah, okay, well, that's where nurture comes in. But yeah. it doesn't. And that one piece of data, the correlation between adoptive siblings' weight, I mean, adopted children's weight and their adoptive parents' weight, they don't share genes, they share the family environment, mm. is zero. So zero. that means zero. So that's a direct test of um, what we call shared environmental influence, nurture, the the effect of growing up in the same family with someone environmentally. So it's, it's a a mind boggling finding. So get getting back to what you said, you actually summarize this very well, just at the beginning here by saying, um, not parents have much less effect on their children's outcomes than they think. One, because genetics is a lot more important than people realize. Mm -hmm. And second, Although the environment's important, it doesn't work the way we thought it worked. Mm. Whatever it is, it's making two kids growing up in the same family different from one another, even though they have the same parents. And so there's 30 years of research saying, well, but maybe parents treat one kid differently from the other. And at the end of that long bit of research, it's saying 
the environmental effects you find are actually genetic effects in disguise. Yes, parents treat their kids differently, but if you embed it in a genetic design, you can show they're treating their kids differently because of genetic differences between their kids. It's a, it's 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 really quite amazing. I mean, and thanks for summarizing thirty years of research in in fifteen minutes. That's uh, that's much appreciated. I want to just jump to the genetics themselves now and, and paint that picture because you know, and also probably leap over the, the the decades of work you and your colleagues have done trying to find individual genes responsible for predicting so much of who we are. And just to go straight to these polygenetic scores, could you take us through? how the genes actually work because it's not just correlation here it's true causation that you found in the genes and how by analyzing thousands if not tens of thousands of genetic variations we're able to predict so much how how do they lie in our code yeah that's that's a good question and you, you hear about dna all the time now but i find as i talk to public groups you scratch the surface a bit of what people know and they really don't know very much about this. So part of the reason I wrote the book Blueprint was to demystify it and to make sure people understand how DNA works because the DNA revolution is coming to, it's come to psychology. And it's important that we have a discussion about it because these polygenic scores you mentioned, which I'll talk about and describe, um, they really are going to transform they are transforming research already. They will transform clinical work and eventually society. So it is important that um, people have some sort of DNA literacy to be able to converse intelligently about yeah. this topic. So uh, going back to the beginning, the human genome was sequenced mostly in 2003. And we know there's 3 billion base pairs of DNA. So these are the steps in the spiral staircase of DNA. They're mm-hmm. called nucleotide bases. And 99 point something percent of all of those 3 billion steps in the spiral staircase of DNA, the double helix, are the same for all of us. Hmm. And we know that you can sequence DNA now, and you and I would share 99 point something percent of all those steps. But 1% one, 1% or less differs. And what we're asking is the extent to which those differences in DNA make a difference in behavior. So when we're talking about heritable influences, we are talking about these um, differences in DNA sequence. And there are millions of these differences. Even though only 1% of the 3 billion base pairs differ, that's, mm. that's a lot. So there are millions of these differences, and you can genotype them. And we couldn't do it before where we had to do it one at a time. But then in 1983, PCR was developed. Um, polymerase chain reaction, which we all know about because of COVID now. But what it does is it can take one cell and create bunches of DNA. That made it possible to get a lot of DNA to do a lot of genetic markers. And that's what led to uh, revolutionized forensics, for example. That's what gives you those barcode-like patterns that uniquely identify individuals so that Mm. you can say, whose sperm is this from the woman who was raped, Mm. for example, or getting in 26 people in the United States had been let out of death row because they had DNA samples from the criminal and that you could prove it was not the guy who was in jail. So it, that was really cool. But then it also mm. um, made it, um, the next step was what called SNP chip. So this is a DNA array the size of a postage stamp that can genotype hundreds of thousands of these DNA markers, these differences between people. Yeah. Quickly, cheaply, and very accurately. 
So that made it possible then to think about genotyping hundreds of thousands, millions of DNA differences for each individual for very large samples. And that's called genome-wide association. And that's what changed everything throughout the biological sciences. Because what we realized with the first studies done in about 2007, and this is there are thousands of studies now of this type, yeah. it's an atheoretical approach. It just says, look at millions of SNPs across the whole genome and just say, does this one correlate with a trait? Does that one correlate with a trait? And you go through all these hundreds of thousands and you say, which of all the SNPs throughout the genome are core SNPs are single nucleotide polymorphisms. Yes. It's the most common type of DNA difference. It's a difference in just one step in the doubles of DNA. So these GWAS studies have been successful, but that, that was the good news. But the bad news was they showed that the biggest effects are so much smaller than anyone ever thought. The biggest effects account for way less than 1% of the variance, most of them yep. less than 0.01% of the variance. So what do you do with that? It's that you could say, well, if you, if you were a molecular biologist and you wanted to study genes from genes to brain to behavior, that's going to be hard to do if there are thousands of tiny effects, which is what this research is suggesting, because there are no big effects. The heritability is due to many, many genes of very small effect. But finally, reluctantly, geneticists came around to say, but what you could do is you could aggregate these tiny effects into what we call a polygenic score. You can kind of add up all these mm. effects and get an overall index of, say, risk for schizophrenia or reading disability. And those are called polygenic scores. And that's what's changing everything. It's, it's really like the 30% the prediction is based on hundreds of 0.1% differences on in specific. It's actually it's actually thousands of 0.01%. Thousands of 0.01, which is impossible to measure until recently when we had enough DNA captured and enough computing power to be able to sort of... Exactly right. It's actually the biggest uh, hurdle was large samples. I mean, we know that if you've got small effects, you need very large samples. And what that's what's happened over the last decade. So that um, with uh, cognitive ability, for example, the first was done in um, 2013 with 110,000 people who were, you know, uh, was for educational attainment, years of schooling. Yes. And that seemed enormous. But that polygenic score only accounted for 3% of the variance in educational attainment. Wow. But the biggest effect was 0.02% of the variance. Of the, these are the top SNPs. So what people realize is you need much larger samples. So the most recent GWAS, there have been four others since that in the last 10 years. The most recent one has um, 3 million people in the study, which allows you to detect very tiny effects. And the polygenic score that came from that genome-wide association study can predict 14% of the variance in educational attainment. But we're slowly catching up to what we know to be true in the in the twin and adoption studies with the, the evidence in, in the genetics. Yeah. Let's move on because there's a lot to cover here. And I'm hoping people read your book and really get into the depths of how genetics actually works because it's fascinating and it is it is challenging for people who don't have a science background like myself. But you do a beautiful job of explaining it all and taking us through. But I want to understand a bit more about what prediction means because I get confused about this. Now, you say 
in your book that the predictive power of genes is about probabilities. It tells us the probability that our weight or our tendency for depression or our IQ will be at a certain level. But as you say, they're just probabilities and an individual with genes that predict with a 50% probability, a likelihood of high depression could actually, as an individual, not suffer from depression at all, as individuals fall within a bell curve around an average. And all prediction does is move that bell curve center to the left or to the right. Now, to be honest, I find all of this quite hard to compute. So so, so when you say mm. that genes predict a 50% change, for example, of, of or chance of being overweight, does it mean that for those who have a high weight polygenetic score, they will on average be heavier, but that any individual could still be skinny? And if so, what should we do with this information if it doesn't tell us about us as individuals and is just really a probabilistic average? Isn't it in a sense dangerous to use this information for any individual? As if someone has a low polygenetic score for agreeableness or intelligence, we could start to see them that way, even if they actually are very agreeable or intelligent individuals. How do I interpret it all? Yeah, well, that's um, the, probably the most common question you get asked in this area. But what people don't realize is, unless the correlation is one, prediction's never perfect. So oh. if you smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, that's highly correlated with having lung cancer. But there's lots of people who smoke two packs of cigarettes a day that don't get lung cancer. Mm. It's just a question of predictive power. Everything is probabilistic. There are very few certainties in say the medical sciences. Mm. And in, in fact, it's a question of effect size then. We're not talking about, will you be obese, yes or no? It's not that at all. It's just, to what extent does genetics, which it does for me, my polygenic score for weight is my highest uh, polygenic score. So it, it means, and it's true for me, it, you know, I'm much more likely to put on weight and find it harder to take off than a lot of other people. doesn't mean I can't do it. It's probabilistic. But some people with my high polygenic score might be much uh, less heavy because we're not explaining 100% of the variance. We're explaining about 20% of the variance. Mm. And in psychology, though, in the behavioral sciences, these are much more powerful predictions than anything else we have. Let me give you a good example. Um, with the polygenic score um, that I described for educational attainment, we can predict about 20% of the variance of, I don't know if in Australia you have GCSE scores as we do in England. These are national exams we give to kids at the end of compulsory schooling. So we can explain 20% of the differences between kids just with their DNA. And what's interesting is we could have predicted that at birth because your DNA doesn't change throughout life. Now you say, well, but still that's a long way from 100%. And I say, yeah, because heritability of educational attainment is only 40%. Heritability of GCSE scores is about 60%. So we've only been doing this for a few years, and the only way is up. We're going to predict more and more of that. But just mm. take 20%. Well, the comparison I'd like to make is with a predictor that we use throughout England that changes people's lives dramatically. And that is um, these Ofsted school quality ratings. So we have the, I don't know if you have it in Australia, but we have this really good system where these independent examiners go to schools unannounced. They stay for a couple of days. They interview teachers, janitors, parents, kids. They sit in class. It's about the best sort of assessment you can make of school quality. So 
these are very expensive, 20000 a shot. You know, so it's millions of dollars going into this. And what's more is that creates what we call these league tables of schools. And parents move house to be in a better school district. They pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to get their kids into the best schools. So how much variance in GCSE scores is explained by quality of schools as rated by these Ofsted ratings? So 20% with DNA. The answer is 4%. What's more is if you correct for socioeconomic status because kids aren't randomly assigned to schools, it's 1%. So here we're taking a prediction that explains less than 4% of the variance. And this is changing people's lives and society and all of that. No one ever says, well, how much variance does it explain? We're almost faulted for what I think we always ought to do. It's not just say, is something related to something else? You got to say, what's the effect size? Because the statistical significance, you know, there's a big movement in the behavioral sciences away from statistical significance, because most statistically significant findings aren't significant in any socially meaningful sense of the word. You get a, you get a significant finding if you just have a big sample. So a tiny difference would be highly significant if you have a big sample. You've always got to say, yeah, but what's the effect size? How much variance is explained? And when you do that, you find things like I'm talking about here, that these school quality ratings explain less than 4% of the variance. So, so it's, it's good for looking at systems and whole groups of people. But what do we do as an individual when we know that, you know, there's a prediction right. of a 20% chance that we, we won't do well at university yeah. or, or we might be depressed, but yet we don't feel depressed? Should we feel like, well, we we are likely to be depressive or that there's a probability that we could be depressive. Uh, the probability is high, but we might not be one of those people that sit within that high bracket. We might be lucky and there might be other reasons. So what do we do with this? These are probabilistic predictions, but they're very valuable. All of medicine is moving this way because medicine wants yeah. to not just cure problems like heart attacks after they've happened. If you can predict them, you can prevent them. And that's much more cost effective right. for medicine from a societal point of view, let alone a personal point of view. So we, we know right now that there of men in the UK, there's something like um, 5% walking around with something like a tenfold greater risk of having a heart attack. Hmm. Now, if I identify you as one of those people having a high score, it doesn't mean you're absolutely going to have a heart attack. All it means is you probably want to pay more attention to the messages we should all pay attention to. You mm -hmm. know, eat well, exercise, monitor your heart problems, you know, possible, mm. possibly. You, it doesn't have to be high tech. You can go from very low tech solutions all the way up to body scans, for example. And the same thing's true with psychological traits. If you knew your kid had a high genetic risk for alcoholism, mm. that particular polygenic score isn't all that predictive. But you could say, this doesn't mean you're going to be alcoholic. It just means if you find out whether you have alcoholic tendencies in adolescence, as they do, by going out with peers and getting blotto, you're more of a risk of becoming alcoholic than they are. It's maybe not a big risk, but, but why chance it? Why not just pay attention to these messages of monitor your how much you're drinking, how much you're dependent on it, take holidays from alcohol? So that I can give you lots of examples. And for me, the big one is with weight. You know, it, it doesn't mean I can't do anything about it. You know, I can do things about it. I have to change my environment. I just can't have junk food in the house, for example. Yeah. And yeah. These, these sorts of implications, they're not going to cause harm anyway. 
And, you know, you could say, well, I'll just ignore it. I might be one of the lucky ones, as you said. But do you want to take a chance with heart attacks, with alcohol? Well, unless you you're know? pigeonholing people based on those polygen based on those scores and sort of assuming yeah. they're going to be something when they might not. But explain this to me, because I, I really can't get my head around this. What you have a high polygenetic score for, you know, propensity to gain weight. But let's say that you really didn't gain weight easily and that you were skinny um, and would always stay skinny. Where is that encoded? If it's not in the genes, how did you end? How would you end up being a skinny person with high polygenetic ah. score to gain weight? Where, where does that yeah. exist? Yeah, well, that's the essence of genetics, though. That we're, um, if you have a single gene, the problem is people learn about genetics from Mendel. Mendel studied c single gene disorders in pea plants, and mm. single genes are necessary and sufficient. So if you were a pea oh, plant right. and you had a mutation for wrinkled seeds, you will have wrinkled seeds no matter how your parents reared you or what your environment was. You, it's necessary and sufficient. The, but the thing is, the genes we're studying work like Mendel said. But as Fisher pointed out in 1918, if you have several genes that affect the trait, you quickly reach what we call a normal distribution, the bell-shaped curve. Yeah. So that means that... Um, uh, what you, your polygenic score, um, it, it means that uh, if you have a high polygenic score, on average, you're more likely, if you take that group, they're more likely to say, have, uh, be heavier. Yeah. Um, and that's also true within families. One sibling with a high, higher polygenic score will be, with a, uh, for weight, will have a, be heavier on average than the sibling with a lower polygenic score, even within the family. So, um, genetics predicts that you'll have these differences. It predicts that siblings will be different because they're only 50% similar genetically. That's you know, so right. I don't know it, if I explained it. Explain, no, it totally explains it. It's in the polygenetic. It's not, it's not a necessary and sufficient, so it can never That's exactly right, everything. yeah. No, I understand that. Let's, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a source of confusion. It is. Yeah. It really been puzzling me, and it took me a long while, to be honest, to even work out how to ask the question, because I've been walking around going, something I can't understand here, Robert, but I can't put my finger on on what exactly it is. But that's mm. totally um, explained it for me. So, so, so jumping to parenting now, you know, there's a massive industry of parenting behavioral psychology that, that draws these lines of correlation between certain traits and being successful and, and being fulfilled in life, like whether it's having a growth mindset, having grit, being optimistic, et cetera. You know, my, my kids' school is all about the growth mindset. And I wanted to, but I was a bit scared to ask the school the question of what, what's the evidence that we can actually teach a growth mindset or, you know, why is it not just correlation? You know, the, you know can we mold a child to have more of a growth mindset? Robert, are all these psychologists, you know, just genuinely deluding themselves in terms of parenting what things do parents really not have that much control over? It's great that you're raising this as kind of the central topic because those four pages in my book on genetics yes. and parenting had, had more attention than the rest of the book put together. But <laughs> I'd just like to say a word about growth mindset. There have been meta-analyses of many studies now that show it just doesn't have much of an effect, um. even given the circumstances under which they're taught it. And what irritates me is that there's so little concern about the quality of environmental research. You come up with a new trick. Like a while ago, the trick for reading disability was a balance board, where kids balance on a board, because there's a cockamamie theory that reading disability is caused by a problem in the vestibular system. So you give people, kids training in the vestibular system, and their reading will improve. Mm. 
Of course, nonsense. It has no effect mm. whatsoever. So mm. a lot of these environmental things don't have an effect anyway, mm. even though we are very um, liberal in terms of accepting data of that. So, cause that's what we want to hear a yes. quick little trick, like a 20 minute video for growth mindset. That'll fix it all up. I mean, it's loony, you know, even if you examine it conceptually in terms of what they're saying. So, um, so a lot of these environmental things don't make a difference, but when they do like parenting does relate to kids outcomes. But as we said, with the example of reading parents who read to kids a lot, have kids who do better in reading at school. Those are correlations that you can't assume are causal. And in fact, at most, at least half of that correlation is due to genetics. Parents who like to read have kids who like to read and they go on to read better when they get to school. So so what can't we do as parents? Like we, we can't meaningfully affect our kids' personality, is that right? Yeah. What what are the big personality traits if we talk about because obviously we can force them to exercise at threat of not having screen time. But but what are the main things that we can't do, which parents assume that that, you know, is sort of in the ambit of what we what we meant to be doing? There's a difference between can and is. So as you said, you can withhold screen time and get a kid to exercise more. Does that mean if you had this idea that your kid's going to be an Olympic marathon runner, that you're going to make them become a marathon runner? You, mm. you can make a difference. You can make them exercise. Or my mistake in adolescence was making my boys take piano lessons, you know, because I wanted, I felt to be civilized, they needed to learn to read music. Well, it, it caused a lot of problems in our family. They weren't particularly good at music. Mm-hmm. And they had friends who were very good at it. And they, they weren't dumb. And they realized, I'm not very good at this. I don't, I like mm-hmm. doing other things, you know. So, um, you can make kids do stuff and you can make some of a difference. Uh, you can make your kid run faster or better. But if you have this idea of molding them to be something you want them to be, like an Olympic marathon runner, you really need to read the book because you have much less effect than you think for both of those reasons I mentioned. Genetics accounts for most of the variants. It's the main systematic source of kids, how kids turn out. And then secondly, the environment is important. But as we said, it operates in this mysterious non-shared fashion, which is, I think, like you suggested, after 30 years of research, we can't find out what these are. What, what, what about grit, Robert? Like what, you know, people try to instill grit in their kids. Can you instill grit? Is there any, can, can you move the needle on that or the kids are gritty or not gritty? You can, but it won't make a difference. What do you mean by the, that? It won't make a difference. Yeah. So the, the section of my book that made uh, that got so much attention is called Parents Matter, But They Don't Make a Difference. So parents matter. Kids can't survive without parents. And more than that, they need parents for providing a loving environment. But they don't. differences in how you parent don't make a difference in how kids turn out. So you can do one of these grit training programs. You can probably get your kid to score higher on these grit tests but it won't make them different in the end because grit is nothing more than the personality traits of conscientiousness, stuff we've known about for a very long time. It's just a new label and, you know, true grit. You know, it sounds great. How can you not be in favor of kids getting more grit? This is an example of, I think, the major point for parents, and that is instead of thinking they can mold their kids to be what they want them to be, it's far better if they recognize differences between their kids accept them to a greater extent, 
and try to give their kids opportunities to find out what they like to do and what they're good at, and then help them do that rather than pushing them the way you want them to be. It, you know, it's, it's such an important point that, you know, it, it's like uh, with your spouse. I mean, if you said, well, she's pretty good, but I can shape her up and she'll be a pretty decent <laughs> person. You know, you don't do things for your spouse or your kids because you want them to be what you want them to be. You do the nice things for them because you love them and you want life to be nice for them. It's quite revolutionary and transformative because it does go against so much of the hundreds if not thousands of years of I mean there's been this pull in parenting and education hasn't there for so long between stressing nature and stressing nurture but even in I was looking up Rousseau's book Emile which which I wasn't actually named after I need to read the book though but you know he sees the need for a child to be educated or civilized into society rather than just following their pure nature and Rousseau was very in favor of 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 nature um, but in Confucian countries, there, there's, there's, you know, a deep assumption that humans are created and not just born themselves. So, you know, whether it's helicopter parenting or tiger mothering, there is centuries of wisdom that tells parents, some people apply this to their spouses, and you, that's when you enter a world of pain, but at least as parents <laughs> that our real job is to take these messy little lumps of clay and to turn them into well-mannered, functioning functional, kind, productive members of society. I mean, do you think on a basic level we can, I mean, we can, can we teach kids discipline and self-discipline, manners, benefits of hard work and tenacity, push them to play an instrument rather than TikTok, creating habits? Can we help them with habits like exercise? Is there anything we really, you know, give us some light at the end of this, give us something to do aside from Enjoying. Well, but it's not it's not the light at the end of the tunnel. It's only the light at the end of the tunnel if you believe that model, which yes, I think is just yes. dead dead wrong. Yeah. And um and you can do things. You know, as we said, if you want your kid to do more athletics, you can um stop their screen time. You can, you know, dole out screen time on the basis of the athletics. I'm thinking though it's just generally kind of a mistake. Better to find out what your kid likes to do and does well and help them do it. You know, rather than saying, I want them to go into athletics, for example. So I, I do think that um, it's, it's not to say parents can't do anything. What they can do is to make nice life good for kids and for themselves. Because I think it's self-defeating and really counterproductive to your relationship if you're treating your kid as a product and you're going to make them into something, kind of like a factory model of parenting. Instead, to be delighted with um, seeing who your child becomes and helping them become what they want to become. And a lot of that is genetics because genetics is the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals. It's a beautiful, it really is a beautiful idea and something that has really transformed how I've dealt with my children. And yeah, I say light at the end of the tunnel, slightly um, tongue in cheek because the light is really to let go of that pressure as parents and to actually enjoy our time with our kids. Now, I was thinking about the other side of molding our kids is that genetic molding. We should discuss this. And with more and more data, computing power, and therefore predictive power, plus the technologies that I understand, you know, are being developed to allow us to alter genes, will parents be able to mold their kids in the womb? And, you know, how far can this realistically go? And in answering this, I'd love it if you could discuss some of the limitations of genetic molding that that genetic effects you say are, are gen- general and not specific. And so 
Tinkering with the thousands of genes that might predict anxiety might also mean we have less future-focused kids, as maybe the genes that link to anxiety also link to a focus on the future. And, and, and this feeds into the bigger point you make, which is that no one actually has a disorder at all, even like anxiety or schizophrenia. We just have a, a bunch of genes that put us on a on a bell curve. We present more where we present more or less of a certain trait. And this is quite a radical new way of thinking about mental illness. Means we probably can't simply mold our fetuses in in the womb by turning off the genes of depression. So how do we think about molding our kids genetically within the context of that ramble? Right. Well, I think it's a good question. I think we're the foundation of the question really needs clarification about whether we're talking about single genes or these polygenic scores influenced by thousands of genes. So with the single right. gene, the idea yeah. of genetic engineering made a lot of sense. You know, cystic fibrosis was one of the first ones where if you can identify that genetic flaw, maybe you can change the flaw through gene editing, for example. But even with a single gene, it's proven very difficult. There's very few examples yes. where we're able to do that. But what if there are thousands of genes involved? Never say never, but I just can't see how that would be possible. There's no theoretical limit, though, is there, Robert? There's no well, physical limit to what we could do. There is in a way, because with cystic fibrosis, we know that the gene mutation has its effect in the lung. So you can go into the lung, you can get access to the lung, and you could introduce change genes there. But what about behavioral traits where we're talking about the brain? How, how are you going to change all those genes in the brain? Trillions of genes. So if you could do it at birth, you know, in conception, where there's only one cell, you could then change these genes. Yes. But you can't, you can't do that technically. But in in vitro fertilization, that's, based, that's the main reason for in vitro fertilization other than conception problems. And that is if you, typically you and your wife have a child with a single gene recessive disorder, of which there are thousands. And you don't find out about it till you have a kid with a disorder. And then you go in and find out, oops, it's a single gene recessive trait. You mo both must be carriers because you don't have the disease. So recessive trait is where, you know, we all have two copies of each yes. gene, one from our mother, one from our father. Recessive trait, as Mendel showed, is when um, you need two copies to have the effect. You need to get one from both and your father. So you would then know that you and your wife would have a 25% chance of having another kid with this disorder. Yes. So if you did in vitro fertilization, you can get these embryos when they're at just a few cell stage and then sample one of those cells, do the genotyping and say, oops, that embryo is the, one of the 25%. And that's good news though for the for these bigger traits, even things like intelligence or- Absolutely. I guess it's good news for those who fear this. Not only can't we affect it because they're just too many genes. They're, they're, they're tens, if not hundreds of thousands of genes that all need to be affected. But then you can't really do it because we don't actually know the trade-offs. And, you know, exactly. it's not like you turn off the gene for depression or even turn off the 10,000 genes for depression because there are other things that might be linked to this, this cocktail of genes, which might yeah. uh, mean that the kid is uh, affected in other ways in their personality. So it's, it's very complicated, I, isn't it? It's I, sh I should gameable. point out, though, that in this in vitro fertilization example, it's not a matter of gene editing. What you would do is you typically get a dozen or so embryos to do in vitro fertilization, and some of them don't look so healthy, and you tend to implant one that's healthier looking. But in this case, you wouldn't implant one that would have the single gene disorder. 
So it's a matter of selection. You know, that is comforting to know in a way, as you said, but with a polygenic score, this is a very real issue because there's a company now that offers to do this. If you've got 12 embryos and say six of them look viable, one of them you can't put in because it has a mutation you're looking for. Well, now we could do a genome scan and say, oops, these these other ones have a couple other single gene mutations. Do you want to put them in? Nope. Okay, but now you're left with three. And what if I told you the polygenic score for height meant this embryo is going to be very tall? And we can predict that quite well. It's one of our best Mm -hmm. predictions. This other one's going to be a shrimp. Do you care? What parents want to know is intelligence. And once you do the genotyping, you can easily tell them the polygenic score for intelligence. This company says they don't do it, but when parents are paying $50,000 for this service, I bet you the company wouldn't refuse them that information. It links into the look at the dangers of all of this, the recognition of the predictor power of genes, and, and, and equally importantly, the lack of predictor power of our upbringing is seen by most people as being really dangerous. It's one of those areas of science that we sort of wish wasn't true for many people. You know, I was thinking about this, that the central belief of the left is that it's our privilege, our advantages or lack thereof in our upbringing at home and school, which determines much of what we become. And equalising the playing field is the aim of social justice. And whereas on the right, our destiny is in our hands and we all have an equal shot at success if we work hard enough. And what you and your colleagues have uncovered here challenges both these worldviews. And not to overstate the implication, but it's a bit like Copernicus piping up and claiming that us humans aren't the centre of the universe and no one wants to hear it as it forces us to rethink too much. So it is powerful, scary stuff. So I, I sort of feel like it's good to be upfront about that as well. You know, we could use genetic knowledge to justify inequality or to limit to control people's lives um, in some of the ways you're talking about, you know, eugenics ideas. But equally, we could use it to challenge meritocracy, which you talk about in your book, to, to deepen our understanding of social justice by offering even more help to those who start life with genetic disadvantage. And so like any form of knowledge, it's really more about the values we bring to the table. So just to ask you, how how nervous should we be of genetics being used as a force for oppression? Yeah. You know, remembering the, the history of eugenics here. Well, I think the last point you made is really important. So I think the science is there. And I want to tell people, you know, you've, you've really got to learn about this science because it's happening now. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. And it's a question yeah. of the values we apply to that. So yeah. if you take schools, for example, which, you know, of course, are very important for parents as well. There's equal opportunity, I think, is really important. Hmm. But if anyone thinks equal opportunity can create equal outcomes, they haven't heard the genetic message. Yes. Kids are going to differ genetically. And in fact, one of the surprising implications of the genetic research is that if you actually were successful in equalizing opportunity, you would make the heritability of school achievement much higher because you've gotten rid of the environmental differences, say like due to privilege, wealth, or better schools, you're, you're getting rid of the environmental differences. You're revealing other inequalities effectively by taking out the inequality of the environment. But what you're leaving, and you're not changing at all, are the genetic differences, so that the genetic yes. differences will proportionately account for yes. more of the differences in educational achievement. So you can't have equal o- outcomes. And that's, you yeah. know, social justice thinking has kind of moved in this direction. And I think that's a mistake. You can't insist on equality of opportunity, 
But what you do with this, there's no necessary implications, I always like to say, no necessary Mm. policy implications. So with schools, for example, I think what's important is that we recognize and respect individual differences in how easily kids learn and because they're very substantially genetic. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. You got kids have to go to school to learn to read and to write and all these other things that we value. But your political attitudes, your values uh, affect what you want to do with this. There's a so-called finish model, which is what you were kind of alluding to, that we could decide that we want to put our resources in the lower end of the distribution, the kids who have trouble learning, to make sure everybody gets up to minimal levels of literacy and numeracy that will allow them to be to participate in society in these increasingly technological days. The other side of it, the right-wing position might be educate the best, forget the rest. Yeah. And I think that's dumb because the intellectual capital of a society aren't just the few people who invent silicon chips. It's really to have a society that's intellectually able to kind of have that pervade through the system in terms of applications and benefits. And and it just challenges us to up our game in terms of our values and, you know, um, have our values fit for purpose with for, for, for the new reality as we learn new information about the world. We have to... Exactly right. We have to sort of up our game. It, that was an extraordinary overview of, of where we are and, and looking to parenting. It was, um, it was incredible. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word about Principle of Charity. It really helps us keep getting amazing experts who will burst your filtered bubble. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.